It's Wednesday, June 17th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Funds, Bill Barker. Happy Wednesday. Thank you. You're looking all sharp. You're all you're all dressed up, and I am all dressed up. So clearly, you have you have plans elsewhere. That's true. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> well, you've, you've you've got your Boston Strong shirt on. Yeah, because I don't have anywhere special to be. You have this, a lot of running shirts. Uh, this is just for a, those who don't know. This is just a basic T-shirt I got from my alma mater, because uh, you know just just to derail the podcast right off the bat, uh, I went to Boston. It's got a College. mile something on it. Yeah, so it mile, feels like a running shirt. <laughs> So I mean, I'm not feeling your shirt. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but you, you just a basic it. cotton T-shirt. Yeah. So the Boston Marathon is famous for, among other things, Heartbreak Hill, which is uh, a stretch, basically like a three-mile stretch of the race. And uh, having done a half marathon that involved Heartbreak Hill, I can tell you it's absolutely horrible. It's just because it's. It's a distance, and you you think, oh, I'm up over this. It's really a series of hills, and where Boston College is located, the main campus of Boston College is at mile 21, and it's basically right after people are done with Heartbreak Hill. So when I was in college, and we would go on Marathon Monday and watch the runners, they were so elated basically the the only more elated they're going to be is at the finish line and this and at this point we're seeing them coming up over the final hill and they were just ecstatic of course we were happy because we weren't running we were just sort of cheering them on are you running this weekend uh, i have a yeah a short race on father's day i'm going to run all right yeah a little four four miler yeah <laughs> Yeah. Add another 22.2 miles and you've got a marathon. <laughs> you've got something to be proud of. All right, yeah. let's get to we're going to dip into the full mailbag, but we do have some news to get to. Let's start with FedEx uh, cuz shares down a little bit after their latest quarterly revenue and profits came in a little bit lower than expected. Um, currency issues, the you know, fuel issues. I I suppose this isn't that big a surprise, um, particularly on the currency front, but you looked at the quarter, what did you think? Yeah, you know, I mean, when something it was in this particular case supposed to expected to earn two dollars and sixty eight cents a share, and it earned two dollars and sixty six cents a share, you know, over a three month period, you know, the estimates were reasonably accurate. Now, what generally companies do is they guide to a number which then they're going to beat by one or two cents or something like that, give the information of how things are going, but put it at something that can be beaten. Uh, so they missed estimates for the quarter by less than one percent. It's not meaningful. Stocks down maybe two percent. So that's kind of consistent with missing by a little bit. Uh, business is going reasonably well in a slow-growing uh, global economy. Uh, currency rates continue to hurt American businesses. So no surprise that they're going to blame the the shortfall. On that, probably accurately, uh, it's it's not not a terribly meaningful uh, quarter. It seems like this is a company that operationally is really having a nice run here. I mean, you look over the last. If the stock is any reflection, and it's certainly one reflection of that, this is a stock that has steadily outperformed the market over the past few years. And not for nothing, it steadily outperformed UPS. I I I don't know why. Presumably, in part because I didn't actually look at the numbers, but I just sort of lumped in my mind. I just sort of lumped FedEx and UPS together 
because there are competitors that tend to track one another pretty evenly. Um, this is not the case. I mean, FedEx has pretty steadily outperformed UPS over the last five years. Yeah, uh, it, it's up almost 19% in the last five years. Uh, UPS is up 12%. Uh, so that is a, a very uh, meaningful outperformance. You'd see the same um, outperformance by FedEx over the last 10 and 15 years uh, on, on UPS as well. So it has been doing the job. Uh, better than UPS. Uh, shareholders are happy about that, especially in the last uh, year. It's really, really had a great run. And so, you know, the, today's two cent miss is, is not terribly meaningful. I don't think shareholders are going to uh, hold that too much against it. it it's had, uh, you know, when I say the last year, most of that outperformance was the second half of last year rather than the, so far this year, where it's, it's, you know, up a little bit, the, certainly a little bit more than the market. Uh, you know, it's nice to have one competitor, uh, the U.S. Postal Service, which is really easy <laughs> to outperform. Uh, UPS is a significantly more uh, difficult opponent. It's like in baseball, like you're going to play more games against your own division. So it's like, well, we we've got an away series. We're playing a four game series at the U.S. Post Office. We yeah. feel pretty good about our chances it's there. Nice to constantly be playing the St. Louis Browns. Um, <laughs> but when we have to go across the country and play the the San Francisco Giants, well, we're going to be in trouble. Yeah, and and you. UPS is a, a giant and a, a well-respected uh, company, um, and not not one that has actually uh, meaningfully outperformed uh, the market over the long term since it came public. Uh, I can remember how much excitement there was when it came public because I was bludgeoned by uh, uh, some readers back in my uh, online fool.com writing days when I pointed out just how pricey the stock was and and was. It, it, as everybody in this company knows, that when you attempt to give that opinion, it doesn't sit well with absolutely every reader. <laughs> so. Let's move on to Starbucks uh, because this is a story I know you and I were certainly opti- uh, optimistic about three years ago when Starbucks bought La Boulange, the San Francisco based uh, bakery. And today comes the news. That Starbucks is actually going to be shutting down all of the standalone La Boulange locations. I think there's about 23. Uh, the majority of those are in the, the San Francisco Bay Area. And the word is that running these as a separate business was becoming a distraction for Starbucks. They're, they're still going to keep the food, they're still going to be sort of promoting it in house. Uh, the stock reacting slightly positively up half a percent, enough to push it to a, a new all-time high. But I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure how I should feel about this news. I, I, I think one should think about it in terms of, so they're shutting down 23 La Boulange stores and they're describing it as a distraction. And I, how, I mean, how far from where we are right now do you have to draw a circle to get 23 Starbucks? Oh, not three miles, four miles. I, I would say safely, I would say a, a five to ten mile radius from where we sit right now. Yeah, right. I, I mean, twenty three stores for Starbucks is. If do they actually have to spend separate time, you know, at at the higher levels of the company, thinking at all about twenty three stores in a different business plan and what should we do? Should we grow it? Should we not grow it? You know. It, but I is it that see, different a business plan? It's not like we have twenty three stores and it's it's a nanotechnology business. It's still 
it's still a retail food business. You're, it sounds like you're calling shenanigans on this. I'm not. I'm saying 23 stores is so meaningless to Starbucks that if they're spending any time at all, you know, if, if, if oh, at okay. some point they said, you know what, we just took another hour talking about La Boulange and whether we should, what we should do over the next five years with it. And during that hour, we could have talked about, you know, our, our 70,000 stores that we're opening next week. And it, it's it's got to be a, a reasonable call. And maybe fans of the La Boulange stores in, in San Francisco uh, are, are disappointed by this, no doubt. Uh, and and But I, I don't see that it's uh, a, a mistake. So, let's go back to something that you said at the time of this acquisition. And that was, you made the comment that it's pretty amazing that Starbucks has made it as far as they have without ever really getting food right. Or cups. Or <laughs> That's true. The lids. It's really the lids. I, I, here's my experience with Starbucks. And as you know, almost as well as anybody, I drink a lot of coffee. Yes. And a lot of it comes from Starbucks. At my right hand right now, interestingly, is a cup of non-Starbucks coffee. But that's just what happens some of the time. Uh, and Starbucks, I think it's it's they refuse to make decent cups of coffee. I mean, uh, uh, the cup itself, it's not that hard. And and the amount of leaking that their cups pour on my shirt and shoes. And I'm not that uncoordinated a drinker of coffee. I've got a lot of experience with it. I'm not spilling it on myself because of me. It's not me. It's you, Starbucks. <laughs> Please take take the, the attention that you now have to spend uh, that has been freed up by uh, shutting down these twenty three La Boulange stores and make a decent cup that doesn't leak. That's my advice to start. <laughs> That's your advice. It's and, kind of you know. And yet, I would point out what at least a couple of our listeners are probably thinking, which is, yeah, but if they spend time and energy and more money making better cups, you're still. You're having this bad experience, and it's not causing you to stop going to Starbucks. You're still going there. That's uh, it's, it's true. It's true. <laughs> let's I get mean, back. But let's get back to the food for a second. Do you think, assuming that the La Boulange food, uh, which you, I, took forever to I'm get across make the country, you answer this because we go there and yeah. you uh, eat the food, and I generally do not. I still do not. Should I be getting something from there when I'm there? Or? I, I guess the question is, do and I'll answer this question, but I want to hear your answer first. Do you, <laughs> Let's do you, just keep asking each other questions do you and not think, answering anything. Do you think they've gotten food right? Do you think with this acquisition, they've imp- it's like, okay, they've solved this problem? I don't know, because I gave up on them, on, okay. on food. And and so and I'm in there and hungry a lot of the time. And, and I just sort of at some point, maybe it is just bitterness about them getting rid of Krispy Kreme, and that's going way back. That is uh, going way back. But, the, you know, still... Can remember the taste of the Krispy Kreme donut, and and I just kind of, you know, if I'm really starving, then I'll get something there. But it it's just they, I, I have an association in my head now that I I can get better food at the other place, wherever the other place is. I feel like they've solved it. Okay. For 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 my taste, they have they have solved food. They have chef, checked enough boxes that I have options. That I can take advantage of. It's not to say I don't, from time to time, want something to eat elsewhere. But in terms of, I'm hungry. I walk in. It's morning time. I've got things I can I can feel good about. My eating. my kids like uh, some of the food there. They request like 
oh, you're going to start, can you get this this uh, lemon pound cake or whatever it is for, for them? So I have no reason to believe that the food isn't better than it used to be, but I have, I kind of, it's, I'm not, I should try it, shouldn't I? You should give it a try. We Are you buying? Uh, yes. <laughs> buying you breakfast? <laughs> Radio at fool.com is our email address. Question from Jonathan, listener number 714. I heard Under Armour is issuing non-voting stock. Are they splitting? What will happen to my shares? Yeah, what's the deal here? Yes, the deal is uh, you currently, I've looked at you, who, what's a, you, Jonathan. Have, you have 10 shares of Under Armour currently. You wish you had more, but you have 10. You are now going to have uh, five shares of voting stock and five shares of non-voting stock. Um, so, uh, this is not a two-for-one split. You had 10 I'm, shares. I'm sorry, I, actually. Now, uh, you've got, you've got um, 10, 10 shares of, of voting and 10 shares of non-voting. Oh, it is a split. Yeah, it is a split, two-for-one split. And you're, they're just issuing you, as a quote, dividend, uh, 10 new shares. Uh, of, But they, they will not be voting shares. So, the fact that you thought you're voting 10 shares gave you a, a say in the company before now you, now you really have even less. You have less. less of a say in the company. And the reason for this is Kevin Plank, the uh, CEO, founder, uh, who's done a phenomenal job um, with the company, uh, there's already a voting class, the, the B-class shares, which have 10 times the votes of the, the A-class shares, um, as they continue to give uh, employee stock options and make acquisitions, in part sometimes with stock. Uh, his ownership stake is getting his voting stake is getting diluted. Um, he's still completely in control. This is going to make sure that uh, his controlling share of the company does not get diluted. And a lot of people do not like that. This is what Google did. Uh, it is more or less a statement that I know how to run this company, and I'm going to be the one who calls the shots. Um, uh, and and you, the rest of you can vote if you think that means anything, but it really doesn't because I have the final say on everything. And that's going and that protects that uh, relationship between him and the shareholders. If you know you think that's something that should be protected, uh, you can rest assured that the guy who's been doing everything up to now is going to continue to be uh, basically the only voice that counts. What do you think of that move? I'm not bitter, but I mean, I think shareholders are so well served by this company up to this point in time that I start from uh, as, as you know one of the biggest holdings in uh, one of our mutual funds and a, another uh, the most profitable holding I think in one of the other ones it's been a phenomenal company uh, I don't look at it as uh, from a completely negative point of view but I think all of us uh, have some appreciation for the, the power of the vote and and so it's not not something that I think shareholders should just uh, rubber stamp. You'll get a vote on this; it, your vote won't matter. Um, but you know, <laughs> as a shareholder, you you get you have your say. Yeah, I, I I'm I I think I'm sort of torn by this because on the one hand, it seems it seems like on the face of it, company X with CEO Y on the face of it, it's uh, a power grab. On the other hand. In the case of Under Armour, at least part of your thesis has to be, I believe in this guy. And so, as a as a shareholder of Under Armour, I just sort of look and go, "All right, 
I know I'm not looking to take over this company anytime soon. And if at some point I get so disenchanted with the way Kevin Plank is running this company, I'm going to vote simply by selling my shares. Yeah, I, I mean, it, what it establishes is that as as much as the company grows from here, and you know, he can't really maintain his percentage ownership of the company because uh, he'd have to be out there buying stock all the time, um, and he's already got plenty. So, I, I I don't think it's terribly meaningful. I think that if this were a CEO who had done a questionable job and was protecting himself. In this manner, I'd, I'd be I'd be exiting, uh, but I, I think that you'll see more of this. Uh, Google did this, and uh, one of the things that happened with Google's split of the voting and non-voting shares is as a result of a lawsuit that uh, there was a settlement to a class action lawsuit about it, and uh, the settlement was: look, if the price of the non-voting shares is Enough less than the price on the on the market after they trade for a while of the voting shares, we will pay the non-voting share uh, shareholders uh, some money, and it came in the form of shares. There is the market does see uh, a couple percent differential in the value of the voting shares and the non-voting shares. So there is a difference in the value perceived by the market in that. Uh, it, the ownership and the, the claim on the profits of the company is the same. But people do value having a vote more than you know more than zero. Question from Brandon Herring in Detroit, Michigan. I've become fascinated with Markel in the past weeks, in no small part due to your show. The recommendation to read their letter to shareholders was good advice. After reading the letter, I began to conceive of the company as the mini me of Berkshire Hathaway. Do you agree? You know that is what people say about it, and and there's, I mean, that is how you want to be thought of. I think as the Mini Berkshire Hathaway. Sometimes you you know see companies referred to as like the Canadian Berkshire Hathaway or the, the British Berkshire Hathaway. You know, so it it is a model of using the float um, to buy percentage ownership in in some businesses and to uh, and, and through stock. Um, so I think that is a way to think about it. And when you do think about it that way, uh, in in many ways. You'd rather have a a mini Berkshire Hathaway than a gigantic one, even one run by Warren Buffett, because his ability to make a lot of money based on capital allocation is at some you know it's easier to do that with less money than more. And he's said that for years. He has promised people going way way back that the performance of Berkshire would not be what it was in its earlier and smaller years. Uh, and that prediction has been accurate, and part of that has to do with the valuations that are in the market, but a lot of it has to do with just the size that you're dealing with. So, Markel is a company that we uh, also we own in the funds to disclose that. Um, been a great performer for us; we love it, and and so that is a, a way to think about it. But you know, it's it's not Berkshire Hathaway. It's got a similar model, but let's let Berkshire Hathaway be a one and only. Well, it's a, it's a similar model, but. One of the things they can't do is is get the kind of deals that Warren Buffett can get. Uh, n- no, certainly not for the. I mean, but Buffett isn't willing or interested in doing. The, in a lot of ways, Markel has many, many more things it can look at just because of the size. I mean, Berkshire is not going to spend a billion or two at least. It's just not even worth their thinking about. 
Thanks for being here. Thank you. You can read more from Bill Barker and his colleagues. Go to FoolFunds.com, sign up for declarations. It's the free monthly newsletter. You can get it at FoolFunds.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.